I would like to dedicate this episode to the Dunning-Krieger. Krieger, is it? Dunning-Krieger effect. And this was the, um, the very unexpected, I think. The researchers didn't expect this. When they polled intelligent people, competent people, they often underrated their self-confidence. Uh, they underrated their skills by a massive degree because, in a sense, the more you know, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't. There's so much you don't know. While incompetent people or people who were unintelligent believed that they were far more confident than, in fact, they actually were. Now, I'm not just picking on uh, a certain group because it, most things in life I'm re- quite incompetent in. That's why I, you know, why we all hire specialists to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. But, but it, it, this is it may or may not be topically directly connectable to the opening of the uh, uh, summarization and in, in reaction to the work of Dr. Jordan Peterson. But it's so goddamn funny. So, so look, here's the situation, though. Just try and put yourself in this guy's shoes, right? Put yourself in, in his, um, his mental genius and mental acuity, right? I'm almost tempted to try this myself. So here's this poor fellow. He had aspirations, and he so desperately wanted to live up to those aspirations. And... Among other things, I'm sure some of his aspirations were good, maybe, depending on what good is. He aspired to make money. He wanted money, and lots and lots of it. But all those jobs he was so confident about, he wasn't. And so he turned to... uh, a different way of life that, although it demands extreme extraordinary confidence and competence, he knew he had all of those things. He had those traits. And he was raring to go, right? Gung-ho. Forward! So, he discovered that lemon juice can help render ink on paper invisible. You know, the whole thing where you can have a blank letter and, you know, it had words on it. You wrote them, you blank it out with the lemon juice. I'm not sure how you reverse the process, but he reasoned. And it's, it's actually logically correct. Structurally, that is. Uh, ink is something that you can see. And you got to see it in order to read it. Lemon juice makes ink invisible so that the letter is secret and nobody can read it. I know that it works for ink, but it must work for other things too, for the same reason that it makes the ink disappear. Therefore, on other objects, it should also do the same. I don't know if he tested that part of the theory or not. But keeping that in mind, his conclusion if I cover my face in lemon juice and go in and rob that bank, they won't see me. They won't see me coming to rob them. And I can take whatever I want. And 
he did this. And he must have walked triumphantly into the bank. He must have thought, felt so secure and confident, realizing that he was indeed going to get away with it until within, it must have been seconds, they apprehended him immediately. <laughs> Try to imagine that. Try to imagine. So if you find yourself in that situation where you've, you thought, and you had every reason to suspect, you could blank out your own recognizable features, maybe entirely invisible. And then you're, you're immediately captured. Can you imagine? I don't think they give people, uh, I don't know about maximum security prison. I mean, we've all heard the anecdotes about, you know, you get, you get a free hotel room for 20 years. You, you get to watch TV and lift weights and and I don't know about that. I, I know a lot of uh, the Supermax prisons, you know, they throw you into a cage. And there are a lot of people in our prisons, too many, who are actually innocent. They are not guilty of the crimes that they were persecuted for. And there's another group of political prisoners that have been just crushed under the heel of a tyrannical government over the war on drugs. That horrible war on drugs. And yes, a lot of drugs aren't very good for you, but neither is alcohol, neither is tobacco. Nobody cares about regulating alcohol. They, they're going after tobacco, but, you know, alcohol causes more cancers than, than nicotine and tobacco does. Uh, they want to continue to take natural substances off the market uh, because they kill people. Never mind that simple Tylenol. Acetaminophen puts over 50,000 people a year into the emergency room with, with liver failure. Emergency, liver failure, acute liver failure caused by Tylenol. And yet they'll panic over, they'll panic over, you know, five people died last year. And it had something to do with substance X. Well, but the person was taking Y, P, and W also. And a little dash of cocaine won't, won't ever hurt, right? So, but no, we know that it was substance X that killed him. It has to be taken off the market. Why? Because, because you cannot endanger people's illnesses. They need to remain sick. And if you keep the prohibition on, on anything that might help them get well and make it illegal and people do it because it makes them better, then you can just keep locking them up, lock them up, keep locking them up. And the upshot of it isn't to get bad guys off the streets, although some of them are bad guys. It's so that the private prisons, the Corrections Corporation of America, it's the biggest one, they literally make money by locking people in cages and leaving them to rot. The more bodies, the more they get paid. And who are these people usually? They're like the, a lot of the people I knew growing up. They are dirt poor. A lot of them are African-American. They are uneducated. They are illiterate. Or their, their literacy ceased at a certain level. They never finished high school, perhaps. They, they have been targeted by a system for, at best, a very minor offense, especially now that people are coming to their senses and they're making it legal for medicinal and, and recreational use. And that it's comparatively harmless when you put it up against, you know, uh, alcohol and uh, tobacco. 
or for that matter, you know, the prescription drugs that are poisoning us, that are, that are some of which, which are useful, but, you know, I just today, I read a headline today, hold on. I read a headline today that talked about statins. I believe this, the headline, the numbers were in like over 50% of people who take statins. Why? To lower your cholesterol, right? Which, first of all, it's not cholesterol, it's sugar, and Coca-Cola made sure nobody ever saw that in the 60s. And they blamed it on saturated fat and bacon and cholesterol. The arteries are hardened by insulin resistance, by... Uh, by, by the damage that sugar does to your body over the long term. The more you take, the more devastating the damage. Until you get type 2 diabetes, diabetes, and you go blind and they cut your fingers and your toes off and your pancreas fails completely and you pay about $2,000 a month for your diabetes medicine, which should cost you $20 a month, and then you die horribly. But that's okay. We can get their cholesterol down, right? They won't have a heart attack by God. Well, there are more people with heart failure now uh, among the millennials than in recorded history. Why? Some 30-something has heart failure. Explain this to me. Some 30-something uh, has uh, rectal cancer? Colon cancer? You cl clarify this for me. I thought young people... So, why are they getting cancer? I think we know why. And they've even discovered now that uh, Alzheimer's disease and other such diseases are communicable and they are prion diseases. Alzheimer's is a double, a double chain prion protein molecule. So where the fuck are they coming from? The denatured uh, proteins kill your brain cells over time. Where are they coming from? Parkinson's disease. What's killing those cells? Something is killing them. Well, when you were eating trash, there's plastic in your water. What do you expect? This is my interaction with the work of Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. So, let's see. This, this may be a continuance. It may not be uh, from where I left off. So the reason why I need to engage his, his work is for personal reasons. Um, uh, and I think a lot of people will agree with, I hope at least, with the direction I'm going in this, because I, I'm sure I'm not the only one. We have, as I've said, as I've alluded to, uh, an entire generation, maybe even two generations now, of people who've gone to university because that's been the path for hundreds of years. Go to university. If you're not going to be a metal worker or uh, in the merchant marines or a farmer or a carpenter or whatever, if you're going to try to do more of a white-collar trade, if you're going to be a worker and fix roads or do whatever you shouldn't need to go to university. You should go to a trade school or an apprenticeship. <clears throat> and yes, in those community colleges, there ought to be some uh, humanities in as far as 
literature, film, novels, poetry. Everyone should have a little bit of that. Philosophy. Uh, because everybody's a philosopher. Everybody. Anybody who's ever asked themselves about what's the meaning of, of life or anything. Uh, everybody is. Anyone who thinks... Anybody who asks themselves the question about what is my purpose here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? It's virtually everyone on the planet. So to skimp people on that is wrong, but if you're going for a more traditional education, liberal arts, if you want to have something to do with um, more cerebral, doesn't necessarily mean you're smarter, just more cerebral, less physical. Because uh, some of us are, are, are born more for to accentuate our talents in the physical, even though they're smart, and some are born... Uh, with their stronger talents more in the fi in the cerebral, even if they're physically okay, they're fit. Maybe they're they're fairly competent. But when people are trying to build the trajectory of their lives. You figure out as quickly as you can what your skill sets are that are strongest, and you try to play to those. And if you can't directly confront it and overcome it, then you have to try to minimize its influence, the influence of of your personal weaknesses. And this system, it's never been perfect. Uh, but at the end of World War II, when those guys came home after saving the world, and they got the GI Bill, and they educated themselves, many of them were hard workers, yet they went to educate themselves anyway. They may have been the first people in their families to ever go to college, maybe to ever even get an advanced degree of any kind, even a high school degree. And after all, they just had, had just saved the fucking world, right? That saved this country. That saved the United States. And it gave this country the strength it needed to beat the communists. Although one wonders how effectively we beat them uh, nowadays. And, you know, with Watergate and the atrocities in the Vietnam War, it, it, it's hard. It wasn't an entirely clean victory, but, but damn it, it was still a victory. And we still won. And part of the reason that we won is because of our manufacturing. I mean, our highways, our, our, our uh, <clears throat> hard working in all trades uh, because there was a level of, of pride. There was a level of, of honesty and of, of a unity, a feeling of that we are all in this country together. We all share our fate together. And we have weapons that could end the world if we aren't careful with them. And there was a sense of, um, in, in spite of the multitude of, of difficulties and, and uh, injustices, which it shouldn't escape anyone that many of those Injustices, if not solved, were at least addressed and they attempted to solve. I mean, because in the end, human nature is, is predisposed towards, I think we're predisposed uh, towards entropy and towards, towards meanness if we're not very vigilant, if we're not very self-conscious. And the education wasn't overpriced and full of garbage. And now it is. And 
there are generations now, more than one, of people who tried to learn enough so that they could be more desirable employees. So while they're in school, they're undergrad, they're working a part-time job or a work-study or something. I couldn't do that. I couldn't hold up against that, that much time. Uh, the blindness made everything except for reading take so much longer. But reading was hindered by the availability of the materials and the books, the electronic scans. But g given all things being equal, I could read much faster. But most people, they work hard. They work their way through college. They take out some loans. Maybe they take out a lot of loans. So they have some training and jobs as they're studying. And the skills they learn help project them into a longer-term career, a strategic choice that hopefully will help them mold a career path according to their skill sets. If they're given good advising, good advising. If they're, uh, if they're in touch with themselves enough to know what they like or what they're at least good at. Um, and the majority of us in our lives end up in jobs we don't like. And we end up, if not doing what we want to do most, at least we end up doing what we're best at, hopefully. And you didn't walk out with massive debts. You walked out. If they did have debts, what started to wreck it for us, I think, is in the 70s when they left college. And that generation was in college to avoid the draft, a lot of them. And they got out of college and immediately declared bankruptcy. And that was taken away. And then, like everything else in this country, it's, it was, used to be built on hard work and a real foundation. Then it was built on plastic. It was built on uh, disposability and credit. That's, and credit and backed up by usury. Okay, usury, interest rates. The interest rates on credit, that used to be outlawed by all the major religions of the world. Usury was a crime. It's a crime to lend somebody money and then charge them 7, 8, 10, 20% interest rate so that you're paying back the money borrowed as well as an additional amount of money so that the, the lender profits. If you have a lender, they've got to do that. That's the nature of the game, right? Because you can't lend money if you don't have it. And I'm not opposed to everyone should make a profit in their profession at least. That's the ideal. But to do it in a way that doesn't wreck other people's lives, and usury does. And what, what must have gone on is you had that factor. The banks, which banks, it's hard to love them, but they're neither good nor evil, but they can do a lot of damage. Because um, they're not ethical. Their banks are stores. Their banks are corporations that want to make money off of other people's money. Um, off of the trust you, you one places in, in the money, and uh, a lot of the money they're making isn't from you or me, it's from other banks and, and giant corporations. That uh, the fact that they're lending and leasing to one another and all that, it's, it gets arcane. I'm not a good financial person, really, but but the, the, the bottom line is banks are selling a service, and they need to make money off the services they're selling. And what is their service? Money, um, 
uh, management, money management, financial management, advice, uh, protection, a guarantor. You know, so if you're running a shipping company and a bunch of your ships go to the bottom of the sea, you know, not everyone in the world is going to lose. You, you can protect your assets to try to regroup. You have that, then the insurance companies and all that nonsense. Um, they realized very quickly they could secure uh, their line of credit forever and would have people force them to guarantee to pay them back so that people don't declare bankruptcy and evade paying back their debts. Okay, great. And meanwhile, the government, for better or worse, Title IX, they get involved in the game and they say, look, we'll, we'll lend you money uh, so that you can pay your way through college when it might have been out of reach before. We'll pay your way through college and you have a better chance at getting into the middle class. You know, that thing that um, no longer exists in our country? The middle class? The American dream? You know, where fucking people had their their 2.2 children and their their white picket fence and the fucking family dog and their Sunday drives to the fucking lake or wherever the fuck they go in the summer? You know, and their two... Uh, Volkswagens or whatever the fuck their minivan, you know. And once a year, they they go to the, they they go from uh, Indiana or some wherever the fuck, and they visit their friends in in their family in uh, North Carolina or somewhere. Who knows, right? The, the fucking American dream, right? And you have your house, and you you work hard, and you have a roof over your children's heads, and you can have a family. That's the American dream, the middle class. You're not too wealthy, but you're not living in squalor and misery and violence. You know, that thing that uh, that generation destroyed the Nazis so that we could have. And then that thing that uh, two generations of uh, statesmen, politicians, soldiers, um, spies, right, uh, NASA engineers, you name it, devoted their lives, gave their lives, many of them died, gave their lives so we could have the freedom for the pursuit of happiness, right? The American dream. Like, you know, I know it's out of vogue now, but the fucking Constitution protects in law the, uh, the rights of our people to acquire property in their pursuit of happiness. And then, you know, that other document, that document that said uh, that all human beings, all men, are created equal with unalienable rights. Equal in that they all share these rights. Not that they're equals, but that they have equal, inalienable, natural rights for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Great. You know that thing that the whole world was inspired by? The whole world. Even our worst enemies. The whole world. And, you know, England wasn't a bad country but they weren't treating our colonies very well, so unfortunately we had to rebel. <laughs> Would have been better maybe if we'd stayed with the English, because in a lot of ways they were, they were, they were the foundation of justice in this in this world. Uh, but well, what happened happened, and a lot of people, a lot, came over here and suffered unimaginably, so that their children and their children's children could be free. Okay, this inspired the human race. And we did this, ultimately, 
so that average people could have that American dream. And maybe those two words, maybe American dream, maybe it was only a dream, maybe it was never real. But they decided that college was the way, the, the, the key to open the door was college. And everyone understood that if you have an education, you better yourself. You can improve yourself. You know, like um, that idea that if you want to be a better person and if you want to make a better world, you learn more about that world first. You learn more about yourself. And then you go forward and you work to make a better life through self-improvement. I mean, that's why self-help books still fly off the shelves when most of them don't work. Because if they did, people wouldn't need to continue to buy them. You know, I, I think it's fine for me to read Napoleon Hill. Why the fuck would I want to read Deepak Chokra? Okay, whatever. Why? Why the fuck? Okay, but the self-help books obviously don't work. If they did, uh, you wouldn't need to keep writing them or rewriting them. You just read it and you could do it. Why? Why? And they decided the government, we need, you know, they were, I don't know what they were. They lied to us. As soon as they began pumping money into the universities, all universities are for pri private. All of them are, are for profit, I mean. The idea that there is a difference between a profit and a non-profit university is, is a lie. They're all for profits. Every one of them, the, the, the fact that they can pay their tenured professors to, to work four hours a day, effectively, and a couple of hours here and there grading fucking papers, it's, it's a really, really easy life. Yeah, some of them work hard. They write books. Some of them are, are very intelligent, and they understand things about the world that most of us never will. So they kind of, some of them earn that money. You know, but it's a fucking easy, easy fucking life. And if you break through, that's not happening anymore. But if you could break through, you get paid a good bit. You break through a little more. You get paid a lot when you get your tenure. You have job security. And that used to, there used to be a, a nobility. There used to be a trust because some of these professors, they did. They understood how the world worked, and they helped send our guys to the moon. They, they helped cure you know, some cancers. They helped with medicine. They helped with uh, psychology and politics, and you name it. You name the subject. And something like literature or religious studies or philosophy, like I've studied most of my life, they had their nobility. It was a little less clear. It was harder to quantify it. <clears throat> but all agreed that it had value, if not directly measurable utility. It had value. Because if you had insight into the human condition, which is why we've had literature, it's, it's also for entertainment, obviously, but you can, you can change the world with, with a good book. Or nowadays, of course, a, a good movie. You can change the world. You can walk in one person looking at the world in a certain way 
and you walk out two hours later, two hours later, and your whole world's changed. You t now that's that has value. Now the Hollywood moguls have no problem assigning numbers to that. They have no problem raking in the bucks. They have no problem paying people. They've determined a salary and a net worth. May or may not be just, but it is what it is. But all of these things have lost their value now, and they've lost it, partly because of inflation and partly because of uh, corruption from within. And why I want to engage with Jordan Peterson's ideas is because the corrupting from within is the primary driver of the degeneration and entropy of our entire society at all levels from the ground up uh, to the, the, the construction worker on the street, on the road crew, all the way up to our leaders and our leading scientists, our leading physicians, our, our leading um, think tanks, all of it corrupt, all of it uh, becoming a, a mockery and a parody of itself. And, and why? Because of postmodernism. Yeah. I'm willing, you know, and people will say I'm being unjust or unfair or uh, uh, I'm painting with a broad brush, you know. I'm caricaturing, I'm characterizing, it's a straw man, I'm putting up a, uh, a caricature of, of the interlocutor, I'm not being fair to the interlocutor. I don't give a fuck if every word of that's true. I don't care. It changes nothing. The flaws in, in my capacity to... Uh, portray, and I don't think I'm in, in, in error, but my flaws in portraying the accuracy of the constitution of, of the enemy do not change the fact, and everyone knows this, that our, it's all decaying and it's being betrayed because all these schools are getting endless money pumped in by generations of young people held down by usury, by loans they'll never, ever be able to pay back, ever trapped in, in uh, a new kind of impoverishment. It's basically, it's wage slavery. It's, it's not, they're not chaining you anymore with iron or indentured servitude. They're not sh shanghaiing you and putting you on a ship in the chains to row. They're doing it through the credit card. And they're pacifying you, okay? And I think everybody is aware of this. They're pacifying, as long as I've got my Netflix and my fucking internet, and I'm no different. Give me my internet and my Netflix. They'll calm you down. You know, uh, if you can afford some drugs or some booze, whatever. Every now and again, that's called partying. You feel like you're having a good time. Uh, you won't ever have a revolution. Or at least you won't have objections. You won't have people opening their eyes going... This is wrong. Why the fuck are we standing for this? Why are we letting these people do this to us? Why are we paying an increasing amount of, of de deflated valued currency? That, that it, it is, the currency has less value. The product that we're purchasing has less value. The further along we go. Why are we accepting this? Why are we party to this? Because there's no other way? There's no better way? No, because they don't know. It's just like the quality of our food. We're being fed garbage. Even if you try to eat good food, the, the soil, the nutrients in the soil is degraded. 
the 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 nutrient content all the while we're in this wellness craze where people are paying too much money for to try to supplement their diets with nutrients and minerals in the wellness industry okay i'm not i'm not pointing this out out of superiority we're all in this i'm right there in it with you <clears throat> so what i'm saying is we got to wake up now i'm not an activist i'm not an organizer i'm not a I'm not a, uh, uh, a hero or a leader. I don't inspire people. But I can still, I mean, everyone else is, I can still throw in my two cents now because of this, this crazy new medium that we have, which I think Dr. Peterson is quite right when, when he says this really is the media, the internet that was meant to pacify us. It's succeeding in a lot of ways to pacify but it's also succeeding in giving a vehicle for people to come together and wake up on an intellectual level that is unprecedented, unprecedented in the history of the human race. Uh, because everyone has their, their time now to find themselves through this medium by listening to one another, by shutting out the, the clickbait, the big networks shutting out the propagandists who want to tell everybody what to think and how to feel. Okay. It's, it's starting to backfire and I want to help. I want to help, um, reject the system that we have now, the values of which are, are degenerate and corrupted, uh, where basically you have, uh, in place of theology, you have, if you're, whether you're religious or a non-religious person, you can tell the difference between the quality of someone's theology, like even MLK, despite his, his flaws, MLK was a great man. Uh, go back another generation and you've got, uh, leading, leading thinkers, in theology, uh, you can tell the difference between someone of quality like that and what we have today. Um, of course, it was the 20th century that, that began the corruption of, of religious theology. You know, the, the, the difference between, I mean, somebody like uh, Billy Graham, I think we can all agree that he was, uh, he was a, a, a man of quality, uh, even a, a non, a non theist. I think one should, should respect these, these men and women for what they did. They, they were the conscience of our society and now that's gone. Okay. Why? Partly because of the weakness and hypocrisy of human beings, which we've always had to contend with, but partly because the, 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 the standards have deteriorated. And no one knows different. The, you know, fast food tastes really damn good. You don't know what a good meal tastes like. You think that what you've always had is the norm. You have the frog in boiling water and you slowly crank up the temperature. Okay, philosophy. Uh, you know, after the existentialists and the phenomenologists, when you start getting into, again, the fragmentary postmodernist, you know, that must be 
that must be what intellectualism is, right? You don't know any different. You don't know any different <clears throat> when you're told that on the religious sphere, the dead God, who isn't dead but fragmented, who can't help you, is a sign of sophistication, not of uh, not of uh, intellectual terrorism. No, you're more sophisticated because you you have all these contradictory ideas that that have no credibility. When in philosophy you're told nothing is real, everything is permitted. Your words have no value. Concepts have no meaning. And then it's a race to the bottom, isn't it? You know, who can outdo? Which postmodernist can outdo the others? It's a race to the bottom. And most of them, you know what they are? They're spoiled brats who attempted a revolution in France in 1968. They attempted to overthrow de Gaulle's government, whatever one might think of de Gaulle. Okay? This transcends left and right, I think. Whatever one might think of, um, uh, of, of, of conservatism or of liberalism the way it used to be. This transcends these forces. But you have uh, a, a vast number of communists, hardcore com Stalinists, okay, agents of Russia who tried to overthrow France. And the 60s were a revolutionary time. You had a lot of groups who had been getting shit on for centuries who decided they'd had enough. And a lot of times their cause were just. And you had empires that were falling. And, and that was probably just as well. Despite all of the upheaval that resulted from it, I think most of us can agree that uh, the Indians ought to have their country, uh, Angola should have its country and its freedom, uh, uh, apartheid is evil and wrong. And I mean, these are, these are things you don't need to adhere to a political affiliation to accept our right. That Israel should have its nation, that, you know, th this is, this is just, if you have anything in your heart, any sense of fairness, any sense of, of humanity, you know, um, of course, there was a lot of, uh, upheaval and, blowback and violence and terrorism and and war uh, as these things fell and changed um but in the main uh it wasn't all bad except that there was one foreshadowing element that that towered over everything that is as the british empire fell uh in a lot of ways they were very just and noble uh, the way they screwed over Ireland, I think, is a black eye on the on the British Empire. But that's another another day. Uh, the 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 the, the um, damn the 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 fighting is still going on because of that whole horrible mess. Um, I mean, people would look at Kenya and say, look, Britain shouldn't be dominating Kenya. It's fine. And so you have all of this upheaval. So it was sort of in the air. And then you had Che Guevara uh, 
and you had Fidel Castro, and you had, you know, and in the beginning, I think a lot of Americans, even though they hated communism and they didn't want the Soviet Union, they looked at it and said, hey, you know, Cuba? Cuba shouldn't be dominated by rich sugar sugar companies and uh, it, uh, all their people in the fields being enslaved. I think even my dad, when he was in the Navy, he had the, the, the prevailing attitude at the time was they kind of thought Fidel Castro and Che Guevara were cool, you know, because this country was built on a revolution too. You know, uh, Ho Chi Minh, when he was fighting to free Vietnam from the Japanese and then from the French. Okay, we'll get back to the French now and their barbarity, which exceeded anything the British may have done by leaps and bounds. Okay. You cited the Declaration of Independence. They loved us. They're, the guys in the OSS were, were trying to help the Vietnamese people. Uh, they, America, they wanted America to support them. But America couldn't do that. We couldn't betray an ally. And, and because France wanted to hold on to its pitiful uh, colony, to pretend it was still an important imperial power, I don't think they had the right to do that after Vichy. I think they, we ought to have done everything we could to pressure them right away, you know. But it is what it is. History is history. And in, in the storm of all this, uh, philosophy and, and politics, an unholy alliance, but they've, they've always been... They've always been in a bad marriage, the two of them. As I said at one point earlier, you had you had a giant underground communist party. Now, in in in, uh, in Greece, they actually succeeded in stopping them from corrupting the Greek government, and there was a war. But our side won in that case. But Although they didn't lose in France, you had Algeria, you had the, the heavy-handedness in a lot of ways, uh, but you also had an over-permissiveness. And in France, the revolution was, was, it was on the verge of exploding. And France kind of tried to steer its own course. Uh, they didn't want to always toe the line with the U.S. against the Soviets, or the non-aligned bloc, uh, you know, the, uh, the oil. A lot, of oil. a lot of this was caused by fighting over the rights, the ownership of the oil. And we needed the oil, and the Soviets needed the oil to, to, so that we could fight against one another. And uh, the Soviets and the United States had proxy wars in these different countries, and it was all driven by, by weapons and oil and... Um, <laughs> political expedience, whatever. And in a lot of countries you had, I mean, America had a communist party, uh, but there were checks on it. Um, partly our own system of government weakened them because most people would, why would you want to join the communist party and overthrow the country that was, was saying, okay, you can be communists, even though we, we don't like your ideology because we believe in freedom of expression in this country. That kind of weakens their whole argument that there's an oppressive ruling bourgeoisie that's exploiting the backs of the poor and the, and the disenfranchised. 
it, it kind of weakens their uh, momentum just a little bit. Well, and we had uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who was crazed, in, in our the head of our FBI, that, well, they did some good things to try to destroy them, but a lot of innocent people went down with them. But, I mean, that what I'm saying is that in a lot of other nations, they weren't as set up for a powerful revolution. But France was. France, uh, maybe it was karma. They lost uh, Indochina. They lost Algeria. Uh, and in the face of a lot of this, they had this, this fomenting spirit of, of resistance. And in 1968, May of 1968, and I need to do more research on this, as, I, as I've always admitted to you about everything I'm talking about. This is just the foundation. In May 1968, a lot of um, college students, kind of like on our side of the pond, but far more severe, decided to over, overthrow the whole French society, its, its government, its university structure, everything, all of it. And they had riots, massive riots, and they, they were burning Paris down, and people were dying, and they nearly succeeded. They nearly did. And all of the postmodern philosophers, who we now think of as postmodern philosophers, were cheering them on, okay? Including people like uh, Pol Pot. Who was he? Do you know who he was? Pol Pot, who graduated from the Sorbonne with a PhD. I'm pretty sure it was in philosophy. Pol Pot, who murdered uh, two or three million Cambodians in the killing fields. Uh, when a lot of these people who did the murdering went to these universities in France. And they were indoctrinated there by communist intellectuals. And so when the students attempted to overthrow the government and failed ultimately, they became disheartened and resentful and hateful because once again, like in so many previous occasions, uh, they had been defeated. Okay, 1848, they were defeated. The Paris Commune, they were defeated. 18, so let's say 70, is it? 71? After the, the uh, Franco-Prussian War when they were crushed. You, you'd think France would learn not to get involved in military altercations. When since Napoleon, they've lost pretty much every war they've ever fought in, except for World War One. That's because we and the British went and won it for them. You know, you 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 think maybe they'd have the good sense, like, look, let's let other countries have their military. Hello, but no, they never learn. They never learn, and so they lost World War Two, and they they eventually, you know, with our help, and well, there were some some brave Frenchmen who fought well and were courageous, and I would never take that from, from them, um, with de Gaulle, who helped destroy the Nazis and recognized Vichy for what it was, as, as a, a treasonous, shameful, treasonous government. Um, you know, but then they went on to lose in Indochina, they lost in Algeria, they, they lost in Rwanda and Burundi, and oh yeah, let's not forget about that. The, the 25th anniversary of the, of the genocide, okay, 
which that was the seeds for that were planted by the French and the Belgians, you know, a hundred years ago. Uh, let's not forget about that. Um, that I think a couple weeks ago, 25 years ago is when the Hutus began chopping up Tutsis, um, in, in Rwanda. And there was a civil war in Burundi and there've been massacres in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Let's not forget that most of that country was owned by Leopold, Leopold II, I believe. I expect people will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, everyone, everybody has to be critical on the internet now, don't we? You know, the Congolese were having their hands chopped off if they didn't meet their quota, and the hands were being dumped into baskets and counted. All of that was tabulated. Why? Because Leopold wanted his, um, his jungle paradise with rubber and minerals. Kind of like now, how we have 10-year-olds living in garbage dumps, uh, mining rare earth minerals out of the ground in, uh, uh, in the DRC, in the CAR, the, the Central African Republic. Oh, and let, let's not forget that their infrastructure is so destroyed uh, now by all the wars that they've been having, which the Western powers have done nothing to even address, much less stop. Uh, that now we have the second largest Ebola outbreak in the history of the world, not because they can't treat the disease, because we have the cure for it now, but because the Civil War has so destroyed the, the physicians, the, the, the doctors being murdered, uh, health workers being murdered, uh, gangs, rival rebel, rebel gangs running around, uh, terrorizing people with it, it's getting out of control. It could it could spread if it hasn't already uh, beyond the borders of DRC. It could end up in Uganda. It could end up in in Rwanda. Yeah, as if they need more misery. It could end up in uh, uh, heck. It could end up in in Zimbabwe. Um, one doesn't have to be an ideology ideological on the far left to recognize that these are horrors that should never have been. Should never have been. So in short, they failed. And, and so a lot of the intellectuals who, according to Dr. Peterson, had to regroup now because of two factors. One, they failed. They failed to burn down, a, a, you know, despite its evils, a civilized country. They failed to destroy it. And they furthermore uh, realized because of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that the utopian dream was, was a colossal failure and an evil, an unprecedented. Okay? There, there was no, no more denial now that that system was from, from top to bottom in every cell, in, the, in its very DNA, was a malevolence that nearly ruined the entire world and nearly caused the death of every human being on the face of the planet. Okay, because uh, I, I haven't found the book yet where Dr. Peterson found this fact, but it's pretty well common knowledge. It's, it's more or less agreed to now. After World War II, Stalin was hoping to have the bomb to keep up with us, uh, but he had every intention of using it and was about to do so. It was on the verge of causing a global nuclear war, which would have 
eradicated all human beings from the face of the earth. And he died because he was, he was assassinated. Some think that maybe they used um, uranium. And now, that isn't so far-fetched. Okay, Liptonenko, 2006, uh, was poisoned by uh, uh, uranium-235, I believe, or a plutonium, uh, a, a small piece of radioactive plutonium. So the Russians were very good at assassination in this way. They, they certainly... I think they had the one-up on us as far as espionage and, and assassination. Uh, they were second to none. Still are. And just because it looks apparently like they cannot link the president uh, with the machinations of Russia, I'm not saying he's guilty, but what I am going to say is that it doesn't mean that there aren't machinations going on below the surface. Uh, I think if they could destabilize our country by tampering with our electoral system, they would. Um, as much uh, respect as I have for the Russian people, I mean, as far as that, the people, they're, they are amazing. They are, uh, they've endured hardships I can't even imagine. Uh, 20, 30 million dead. Uh, most of them killed by, in the 30s, all of them were killed by the, the, their own government. Then in the 40s, they were killed by the Nazis and their own government. And then in the later 40s and 50s, they were killed some more by their own government and imprisoned and killed. Uh, that's Russia. Meanwhile, China is starving its people to death. Uh, they think 50 million died. Between the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, it was in a, less than a 10-year period. All of these were coming to the fore, all of these facts, all of these undeniable uh, man-made catastrophes of genocide. So what do you do? What do you do when your utopia uh, has failed and it's undeniably a failure by all measures? What do you do? You rewrite the script, of course. That's what you do. And that's what Dr. Peterson says the postmodernists have done. And I, I, think, I think to some extent uh, uh, explaining postmodernism, uh, there's a book called Explaining Postmodernism. They, they talk a little bit about this theory, which I think is probably quite accurate, where they failed both to build their utopia and their propaganda had completely imploded and disintegrated. So what do you do? You do what the Frankfurt School did in the 30s before them, the Frankfurt School were uh, exceptionally intelligent leftist intellectuals who tried to stop Hitler. They tried to stop him from taking over Germany in the late 20s and early 30s, in the electoral politics of, of, of Weimar at that time. And the fact is that the, the, the Nazis were just better at, at galvanizing the people. They were better at getting the people to follow them than the, the communists were. I mean, and these weren't like, they were, these were more the idealistic intellectual, still dangerous in that communism always leads to blood bloodbaths. But I, I think someone like Theodore Adorno and Walter Benjamin, I mean, these people were, a lot of them were artists. They were playwrights and poets and idealists and dreamers. And 
you know, as individuals, I'm not sure one could call them evil. And many of these Germans fled or were exiled. They fled for their lives, many of them, to the United States. And they built university because many of them were excellent intellects. I mean, intellects on an order that, that would make most of us uh, almost ashamed to call ourselves intellectuals if we're in the same room with them. These were very sophisticated theorists. Okay? Some of them were, were even uh, ec economists, scientists, theologians, philosophers. So there was a, the, that first wave, the Frankfurt School, and in the 40s, and so a lot of them helped fight the war that defeated the Nazis. Or rather, wait, let me be more accurate about that. It defeated the Germans. But I can't say the Nazis were defeated because whose rockets sent us to the moon? Uh, well, so maybe one could make the, the case to argue that the postmodern thinkers were the second wave. Uh, another wave of, of leftist thought, only recombinant Westernism, because uh, the first wave of, of Marxism was more honest in its intention. It was They were Marxists. They were more direct. Their great question was, why did this happen? Why did we lose? Because of mass media, because of this or that. And so you have, you have um, uh, the dialectic of enlightenment, where it's, an it's a soul-searching. Like, why did we fail? Why did we lose? Um, Herbert Marcuse's one-dimensional man. I mean, you have... You, uh, these are canon, by the way, in the philosophical or cultural theory circles. These books are the foundation of a whole paradigm of thought. And so the great soul-searching... And then 25 years later, a far less significant event on the historical stage, but of equally culturally or, con you know, consciousness tripping, um, rude, shocking awakening, when May of 68 failed. And so what did they do? They came to America because land of the free, the home of the brave, the country where, you know, <laughs> where you can still, uh, if you have a lot to offer, you, you still can. You can still build a life of, of wealth and decadence, all the while you're trying to destroy, never mind that, you want to destroy the, the very system that allowed you to have the freedom to do it in the first place, but never mind. So what do you do? You rewrite the script. That's what you do. You change the players. You you You... You go back and you say, well, look at all these civil rights groups trying to win dignity, egalitarian, equality. Why don't we take up their cause? In fact, why don't we take up every, every group that's seeking its civil rights, women, the, the African Americans, the, the Native Americans, the, the disabled why don't we take up their cause for them? Because they can't do it themselves, obviously. We, uh, we have to do it for them. Why don't we take up their cause? And uh, the same way you have recombinant DNA, right? 
you have recombinant class structure, class struggle. Now it's, it isn't the haves and the have-nots any longer. Uh, the landowners crushing the, the peasantry. It's the, the oppression from the patriarchy. The oppression from racism and its vestiges. And there was enough truth in that so that who could tell them, no, look around, look around you. I think the case gets a little harder and harder to argue as you travel across different dialectics, but there's enough misery to, to, and enough injustice still to support the, the, the premise. So now you want to talk about said special interest group is fighting for, what are they, do they even know what they're fighting for? Their rights. Whatever that means. I mean, what, what are my rights as a disabled person if I were to entirely buy into this, this paradigm? Because God knows I've, I've been discriminated against and I, I, can, I, can, I can prove it. I can make a powerful case for it. Um, I think it's disturbing that most of the disabled, they, they still can't get a fair shot from a lot of people, and I've gone into some of the reasons why, some of which uh, aren't because of malevolence, which is what the postmodernists want to say, it's all because of malevolence. Some of it's because of maybe horrible misunderstandings or, or unfortunate situations and difficult ones. There needs to be a conversation, yes, but not necessarily a fight, but the goal of, of uh, Marxism is the violent overthrow of the capitalist system. And so some might say in the, the, the case of the disabled, well, they're trying to fight for the equal rights to participate in the capitalist system that's overthrowing, that's, that's uh, the ones doing the oppressing in the first place. Uh, they want to compete as equal players in, uh, in the corruption of, of the capitalist system. Uh, those are what our rights are, the right to, to buy and sell <laughs> in the temple, right? Um, but now postmodernism is, is not so honest as, as communism, and they, now they're, um, they're all about controlling the discourse and the dialectic. By changing, what do you do? Okay, you rewrote the script now. The protagonists aren't, aren't any longer the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, although those words appear rarely, now they're the, <clears throat> they're the privileged and the uh, disempowered, right? That's why we have to speak truth to power, because we're disempowered. And we reclaim our power by reclaiming the, the language and the words. And the most common way to do that whether it's justified or not, whether there's an organized uh, society-wide uh, oppressive lockout or not, you do it by taking the words that are used to hold you down and by reclaiming them. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and you simply rewrite the meaning of those words. And 
by changing the meaning of the word, it, it gives you more power to, to shame and vilify and ultimately intimidate and terrorize. And whatever means necessary, you, you, you have to undermine your, your enemy. Saul Alensky. Everyone should read his book. Everyone should read Rules for Radicals. Um, because in the end, you're not, you're not trying to convince uh, sighted people, in my case. The goal isn't to convince them that I'm worthy of respect and ought to be given a place in their, in, at their table. It's to overthrow the table and, and uh, smash the, you know, the, the domination of, of, these, of the sighted people over the blind <clears throat> and take what we deserve, not, not earn what we want, but take what we deserve. And I can tell you it's, it's, it's difficult to resist that temptation because, damn, it, you get pissed off by the way you're treated sometimes. It's hard not to be angry. I think most, I think if they were being honest with you, if you talk to most disabled people, most blind people, uh, they would tell you that a lot of what's driving their, their uh, anger is the disenfranchisement because there's plenty of evidence to, <clears throat> to support the supposition that we are locked out that we're locked out of being full citizens. But I think that part of what that represents is sacrificing the best for the sake of the good. You, you can harness the, the, the outrage or the resentment, if you will, of a group of people who, who have justifiable grievances. But the goal isn't any longer to address those grievances and to solve them fairly. Again, as I, as I say, and uh, to repeat, to reiterate, the goal is to destroy an oppressive class. An oppressive, you name it, you name the hierarchy that needs to be tossed aside and, and, and burned. And I'm not suggesting that the hierarchies are good, and neither is Jordan Peterson. He gets a lot of flack for that. By, by defining what an issue is and explicating it, that is not to be confused with approval or agreement. Okay, because he's a clinical psychologist. He's, he's treating people who are, who are coping with catastrophe and tragedy in their lives with with sickness he doesn't approve of people on the bottom being crushed he doesn't and when he talks about in 12 rules for life what what life is like on the very bottom of the of the hierarchy i've lived that i've lived what he's described i'm still coping with the matthew principle you know um for 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 those who are 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 given more will be given for those who are having taken, more will be taken. Um, the Pareto distribution. The, that if you fall to the bottom of the heap, and it's, it's increasingly difficult now to redeem yourself, if you fall, you keep falling. 
you lose social capital, you lose social desirability, and you don't get up again anymore. Which, there, even though there are a lot of programs now that purport to help, I think they have their flaws, and, and <laughs> that's, I'm saying that oftentimes being on those programs, they have their, their, their irreconcilable contradictions. I mean, <clears throat> for, for the disabled, I think more so than other groups, the, the main fear is, is of human vulnerability. Disability isn't, this is why I object to our being grouped collectively. Because disability is, is a state of relation. It's not a, it's not a, it's not something by which you can identify people and, and say they are A, B, and C for these qualities. Because disability could happen to anyone. God forbid the, these, these bodies that we live in are, are very fragile and they're prone to breaking before we die anyway. And uh, I, do, I do think it's a, an accurate statement when and certain activists uh, call themselves temporarily able-bodied. Tabs. Tabs. Because it's acknowledged that in the end, we all age, and as we age, things break. And as things break, what happens? You become disabled. That's what it means in, in, the, in the medical model. Something breaks and doesn't work anymore the way nature intended it to function. <clears throat> and to me, the, both models, the medical and the social model, they both have their, their shortcomings. I think the social model has more, but... The medical model has its problems too, because the, the idea there is the machine is broken, fix the machine, fix the problem. And I, I know it's far more complicated than that, such that even uh, in the cases where blind people are having their vision restored to them, I think in, in unique ways, because these are sensory disabilities, the blindness brings its own sort of strange pain, even if it's remedied. Uh, I've read about this. I've read that sometimes blind people have their vision restored to them. Miracle of miracles. And they find that they're worse off and more miserable and more helpless than they were before, which is paradoxical. I think partly because of the psychological disappointment that the world isn't, it doesn't, it doesn't look, first of all, the way one imagined it would. And being able to see that world doesn't give you the freedom or the increase in status that you hoped it would give you. And the, the eyes don't, don't bring seeing into the palm of your hand because seeing is a skill, not an innate ability. You have to learn how to use the vision you have at a certain point in your development, the development of the brain, a child's development. And if you don't get those skills in the right window of development, it's very hard, if not impossible, to get them. But even in this, I've, I've heard mixed reports. I've read about uh, children having their vision restored in India by having cataracts removed. 
they've been blind all their lives and, and they're apparently fine. But I've, I've, I've read about similar in America. And they're helpless. They, they don't have depth perception. They don't have the ability to calculate distance. They, they, they can't identify. It takes time. But initially, they can't identify objects by seeing them. Uh, there was a, a philosopher in the 1700s named Molyneux. Um, the thought experiment is, is called Molyneux's, Molyneux's Problem, where he wanted to know if, if you had a blind man and you restored his sight, could he identify a cube or a sphere by looking at that cube or sphere? He could tell you just fine when he's blind what, which one is which, because obviously he can hold it in his hands, right? And he thought the answer was no. Some thought, no, the blind can identify the sphere and the cube. It's obvious. Of course he can. Once the vision's restored, it'll work just fine. You know, given a few days or weeks for the eyes to recover and to become used to the light. And, but Molody was, was, was correct that he couldn't identify it. And that wasn't because he couldn't see it. It was because his brain couldn't interpret the information coming in. And that's where we go back again to perception is guided by your capacity to reckon with the possible according to your skills. Seeing is, is, a, is a choice according to your desires, which your desires are an outgrowth of your, of your skills, of what you know how to do. Um, so if you gave me vision, I couldn't get into a car and drive it. It would take months, years maybe, if ever. Maybe it never would, because that's a skill. Uh, hearing isn't so much a skill. Hearing is, is uh, more passive, where seeing is at all times active. It's um, the most active of the senses. Although touch is also active, but seeing is far more powerful, obviously. It's, it's a, uh, a much stronger connection to the world or interrelation to the world. Because when you're touching, you really can't feel a whole lot under your hands. And I find it, I know others don't, but I find it difficult to stand in front of a, uh, a sculpture, say, a statue, or uh, uh, an abstract sculpture where I'd have to walk around it to, to touch it. Um, I can't construct a tactile map of that in my head. I, I can't, by feeling it all from, from, from top to bottom, I can't. I can't construct from that the mosaic, from those little bits. It's like flashing a small circle of light and you're trying to construct a picture in your head. It, it, it's hard to do. I guess I understand that when most people, if you, if you picture something in your mind, your tendency is to picture it from one side and slightly above. 
So when you're looking down in your mind's eye, you're a little bit above it and focused on one side. So you're not seeing the whole, if you're looking at a cup, you're seeing one part of the curve of it until it curves beyond the horizon where you can see from a position slightly above it, elevated, looking down into it. So you know from your your aerial perspective that it's, it's, a, it's a cup, but you don't need to see the whole cup to be able to, to, to fill in the missing details. And the most accurate way to do that is from that angle, from that vantage point. And that's... I think the brain has to have a lot of refinement to be able to differentiate, to be able to do that. Because a lot of what you see, in fact, you're not seeing. Your brain constructs, as well as, as your desire determining what you choose to look at in the first place. Your brain adds more to the image so well that you don't notice that you're not seeing it you experience it. That's why when you have certain vision loss, um, either from certain kinds of brain damage or, or from even from uh, uh, retinopathy, uh, ret retinitis pigmentosa, say, your brain will try to correct for those missing details, accurately or not. Um, in the case of damage to the eyes or to the uh, a visual occipital lobe, the uh, visual cortex, you're not aware that you have a blind spot. And, and even in, in healthy people, the, the, the fact that you have a missing space, a small missing space, you don't see a small hole when you're looking out. If you're driving your car and you look around, you're driving, you don't notice that each and every moment you're looking at the road or you're looking at the other vehicles or whatever it is, there's a hole where no visual information is picked up by your brain. That gets people killed if, if they're not able to be attentive because you see sky or road or fields or whatever it is that you see through the whole, the whole um, curve of your 180 degrees of vision. There's, there's no missing little spot that's black but the fact is that spot is there and if if you're driving along and somebody turns into your lane and you you miss them you don't pick up on them till it's too late if it's the right angle the right speed the blind spot which everybody has that the brain um, compensates for by just replicating more of what it's already seeing that it thinks it sees that's why optical illusions work the way they do. Far from being powerful and infallible, vision is easy to trick. Your eyes are easy. They're, they're easy to um, present an image to that befuddles them utterly. It's the whole industry, isn't there, of optical illusions? All over the internet, look at these pictures, what's missing in the detail. You know, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating because, because vision is the most important of our five senses. And people, uh, it's the sense they get the most aesthetic enjoyment from. Really, I mean, you, you're willing to 
get on a plane and, and fly to Paris to look at the Mona Lisa or go to Colorado and look at the Grand Canyon. Think about just I mean, I've, I've probably mentioned this before, so I hope I'm not boringly redundant, but it seems so natural to you, but, but step back for a moment and imagine that you're willing to expend large sums of money and time and you work to have your vacation and you why so that so that you can enjoy the scenery the scenic qualities of uh, the Tyrol the mountains in Austria uh, or the Caribbean islands why so you can enjoy the view and there are there are people who live out their lives trying to get an office on a higher floor. Why? For the view. Because the execs have better windows in their offices to connote their status, and they have a better view, a panoramic view of the city. Nobody needs... Why do you need that? What good is that? Um, it's counterintuitive. People who have a, you know, no view in their office or a, a, a shitty view of a wall they might become profoundly depressed because all day they have nothing to look at. They're being starved. Their, their, their sensory experiences are impoverished. And that does psychological damage. I mean, that's something a totally blind person would have difficulty understanding. Uh, if they're born blind, that is. It's hard to, hard to make sense of that. And that's one of the things people fear that they lose when they lose their vision is, oh my God, how can I deal with the world, such a world devoid of beauty? Uh, and I mean, that, that, it's not enough to say to somebody, it's not enough. Well, you might be losing your vision, but you know, there's, you can hear, you can touch. There are ways you can reconstruct your, your enjoyment of, of nature okay, that uh, technically is true, and some people are able to do this. They're, they're, but you're losing a, a massive, a massive piece of, of what makes the world bearable for most people. And it's, not, it's, not, it's few and far between. There's not a lot of beauty in the world, physical, visual beauty. That's why you have to travel to these places that are unusual because most of the world isn't beautiful. It's humdrum and, and boring and blah. And I mean, failing the ability to go there, that's why you need pictures on your walls for these places. Or you watch television or YouTube in order to, to see these places you may never see. That's a whole industry, seeing things, seeing things. That's because vision is, is an, it's an experiential skill that, that affords you with the strongest connection you have to the world. It's through your vision, through your eyes. And it's a very difficult thing to try to tell somebody 
you know, you can't tell, I don't think you can aesthetically on the grounds of aesthetics. You can't say to somebody, blindness, you can still have an equal experience of the beauty of the world. No, you can't. It, what you could say at best is, for those of us who were born blind, our experiences are as valuable the texture of the experience of our reality holds as much intrinsic worth as does the ability to aesthetically enjoy seeing. But if you go from seeing to not seeing, part of the trauma is reconstructing uh, the same kind of relationship that is as, as nourishing to your soul as once was your enjoyment of, of, of a sunset, of, of light, of the, the play of light off of the water, of waves, of the stars. They, they're even talking now about the light pollution, the damage that's doing to people psychologically because they can't look up into the night sky anymore and see the, the beauty of the stars, of the starscape. I... I, I think my example demonstrates that maybe that's not intrinsically destructive, but, but I can't say for certain. Um, to be able to see the moon and the stars and the planets and the, the constellations, being able to see these things have, have, have driven uh, generations of scientists and, and artists and poets and painters and thinkers and I mean, Van Gogh's Starry, Starry Night, okay? And need I say more? Um, people need this aesthetic. It's, it's, it's as much necessity for nourishment for, for their internal balance, their health and their well-being. The aesthetics, the pleasures of the world, they're as needful as, as human companionship is, as love, uh, as the intense enjoyment of, of beautiful music. We don't have a lot of beautiful music anymore. We've got music that's fun to listen to. Maybe it's, it's uplifting to a point, uh, but I wouldn't call a whole lot of music out there now beautiful. Uh, the, the symmetry, you know, these, without these things, <clears throat> That's part of what breaks people in, in prison. You put them into a room where it's, the walls are white and you leave the lights on all the time. You impoverish someone of their sensory experiences and you start to break their psyche down. It's fascinating uh, because without knowing it, when, when, and it's not your fault it, to take it for granted because it's always there, but you don't know how much how much your vision is is uh, how much it's nourishing, for lack of a better word, the soul, your soul. So much so that if you don't have these things, it can drive you mad. Now, that's not to say that blindness intrinsically is an impoverishment if you go from being sighted to blind. It's it's a devastating blow, sure. 
and then it would be you'd have you'd have uh, uh, a strong argument for the deficit experiencing the deficit on a, a profound level more so than just your loss or perceived loss of independence of, of um, capacity to be self-reliant that's another problem all in and of itself uh, that with today's technology, we can largely compensate for it. And I think in the next 10 years, the final liberation of that will, will come for us because people put great stock in being able to drive. And we've built a world reflective of that, of that value. And people who do not have either the freedom to do this or the, the resources to do it are, are looked down upon and their lives are seen as having a lower quality and, and they do have a lower quality. And then the whole uh, schizophrenic notion of um, uh, give and take, equal give and take, as opposed to um, begging and constantly asking for help. Now, everybody has to ask for help, but we can mitigate the shame by payment. Like I've said earlier in this very episode, you, you hire someone because they have skills you don't have. There's no shame in it. You pay them. But if you had no resources, it's shameful to ask, to beg. It's shameful to take someone else's money to pay them. It's, it's shameful to be on the, the dole, the Social Security because it's a sign of, of helplessness. It's a sign of increasing dependency. And in the back of everybody's mind is, is the fear. And I think it's, it's borne out by history. That if you cannot prove your worth and, and, and hold an equal space in your society, they'll just bloody kill you. If you're not seen as contributing they just kill you. That's happened in more than enough societies. I don't. I don't need to. I don't need to prop that statement up. It's. It's obvious. Everybody instinctively knows this and feels it in their hearts. Everyone does. Fortunately, we live in a world that if we don't blow ourselves to hell first, um, self-driving cars will will allow everyone to cede their control over to the machine, but they'll all be able to go wherever they want. And then that disabling quality of blindness is negated permanently. Um, if we build better computers, uh, you can put stuff in your brain, chips in your brain, which I don't... In principle, I don't object to, to cybernetic augmentation. You, it'd be like Geordi LaForge, right, on Star Trek. He wasn't blind. He was a lot of things, perhaps, but that character wasn't blind. Um, because most of, well, what, what do we lose if we lose our vision? We, we lose our ability to act independently upon the world, largely. There are ways to compensate for it, but... Um, there's still a deficit, even in the best, even in the most independent, well-adjusted, and capable 
um, it doesn't quite fill the space left by vision being lost. Um, or you lose your enjoyment of the world in which you live, your aesthetic appreciation for, for the world in which you live. Um, that fascinates me, because to me, the beauty of a place uh, by necessity is, is constructed in a different manner. It's, it's built around the qualities of the experience, the people that I'm with when I have the experience. But uh, maybe other blind people would disagree with me, but I find the idea of tourism, going somewhere by myself, largely unappealing. As, as it's, you know, within itself, tourism. Because people go to different places to, they don't quite understand that they're really going there to share an experience with people they care for uh, or, or to make new friends. The foremost sense for them is the aesthetic appreciation. They're going there and feeling as though you've really been there because you've seen it with your own eyes, right? By having seen it with your own eyes, you, you possess it. It's part of you now forever. But you've got to take pictures to remind you of what you saw. That's strange. If it's so much a part of you, one should always remember. Now, I mean, to me, that's... I think it, it's the same for sighted people, too. The, the core of the experience is the people they're with and the, the purpose for being there. They're, but the vision is going to take the foremost because that's the most obvious interconnection to the world. It's fascinating. Um, where I can, one can literally, it's, it, it's a source of endless fascination for me. One can, can literally, literally change the whole internal emotional landscape of your world by changing what you see. Now, it will be fascinating when virtual reality really takes off. We're not talking about a, a, a low bit rate pair of, of virtual glasses or a helmet when they can hook stuff right into your brain and, and project the image right into your brain. I'm really waiting for that because that's coming. And, and when that happens, it's already on its way. Uh, there might be blind people in the world still, but for most of their lives, they won't be blind anymore. Because the brain doesn't care where the information comes from. All the brain cares about is is electricity. That's what the neurotransmitters are. The the they're they're transmitting electricity. These these neurons are just they're like they're batteries. They're they're uh, electrical stimulators, the positive and negative charges. According to the positive and negative charges, then the brain pumps DMT or whatever it needs to do um, to construct your reality in your brain. It's hallucination. Um, really, it's, 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 it's a hallucination. Because the brain has no direct connection to the world. It's, it's blockaded. And it isn't a direct route. It's not like a tube 
through the back of your eyes into your brain or through your ear canals into your brain. It's, it's a connection to a bunch of neurons that do a lot of uh, firing, neural pulse, electromagnetic pulses, and using the different neurotransmitters as a medium so that other cells in your brain can construct an image uh, which may actually have nothing at all to do with what's really out there. We don't really know what's out there. We really don't. And, and, and the fact that, well, can't you see it? I mean, if you're looking out over that field, I agree, it's a field. I can, why do you agree? Because I can see it too. But, but what is it really? Um, light is just waves of energy. It's just waves of electricity, waves of magnetic pulses. We don't actually have a clue what the quote-unquote reality of it really is out there. Hence the, the metaphysical question of what, what is real. Because the images our brain are producing are the most real for us because they're the most convenient to us in our ability to interact with the world. But we don't really know what it is. You, you can only understand what a thing is uh, according to your direct experience with it, your relationship to it, your consciousness of it. But the actual thing in itself, that's um, what Immanuel Kant said, you, you, the thing in itself is unknowable for what it actually is. You experience it in space and time through your senses. And what the phenomenologist said is the thing in itself includes you experiencing that object as you experience it, that's what it is. That's its thing in itselfness, not what it might be uh, outside as an abstract, outside of human senses, human consciousness. Um, so the phenomenologist slightly changed the, 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 um, the definition of thing in itself to accentuate uh, the in-the-worldness of you and that thing without necessarily worrying about not knowing what it truly is, right? I mean, that's just saying you sh you're in the world with this thing and it's part of you as you experience it, not as it... We don't need to worry about what it really is. So we can talk about colorblindness, but we don't really know. We don't know. You don't. How do you really know? Well, you test someone, and everybody says, "Well, you, you, they can't see red," and everyone else can identify the red and 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 talk back. Well, I can't see. You, you, we can see the red. You can't identify. It's black and white. Um, but there's no way to tell. In the end, this is why metaphysics can be fun. There's no way to tell. Is is the red? Uh, that I'm seeing, the same red that you're seeing. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's not. I mean, that's, that's, that's the inherent mystery of consciousness, one of them. We don't know. We don't know what that person is experiencing in their mind. We reconstruct based on our experience. And it may or may not be accurate. 
you know, that's what, that's, there's a, a gigantic amount of processing power in the brain that, uh, that's its, its purpose is mirror neurons, is to reconstruct, to build empathy, to increase connection through empathy. We actually have no connection to each other whatsoever. None. We have a connection to an algorithm. Uh, because you really can't, you really can't. You can't touch the other person. You can't really, uh, your emotional response to them may not be accurate to them. Uh, the language we use doesn't convey. It's the best we can, but it doesn't, doesn't convey necessarily. Um, we don't even know. We, we can't, nobody can even demonstrate. What's this damn little clicking I keep hearing? We can't even uh, demonstrate necessarily that there are really other minds out there. I think there are, but I suppose there weren't. <laughs> that you're the only one who's actually real, and, and all the rest of us are programmed to act the way you'd expect us to act, but don't really exist. Uh, that's uh, solipsism. It's, that's um, uh, the idea that all these entities are zombies. They're pre-programmed. They're droids. They're, they're robots, whatever they are. And that the only one with what you experience apparently as, as consciousness is you. So if one really delves into um, into this concept, it can get scary. It can actually get frightening. It can it can it can drift into areas that might keep you awake at night. You know, because people can talk all they want about a relationship uh, that's shared visions or emotions or thoughts, and maybe there are. Maybe we are quantum entangled, and maybe it, it is. It is a fact that we share consciousness, but um, until they figure out a better way to determine that or to prove that, we're left with. <laughs> if we want to consider it a pretty uneasy um, conclusion to wit that this is, it's all a dream. It's a simulacrum. Because at least in the sense that the brain has to, independent of what one might expect to be the forces that produce reality, it has to reconstruct reality. That can tend to open up doors that are disquieting to open. But they're fascinating, so how can you not? How can you not open it? It's just so damn fascinating. You might as well open it. But the, the intriguing thing that, that, that blindness can offer to the discussion is that I have to, my life depends on your vision. And it depends on, on how well you can make me understand what you're seeing. And, and that 
almost seems to prove on one level, at least on one level, that there is um, there is in the ontological sense, there is a reality that that is indubitable. That the reality is is the ground. That is, there is a shared ground that doesn't, that isn't so um, relative. There's there's a level of flexibility to it, but at at the end of the day, it's it can't go very far. And and usually, if there are differences in your reality, and it seems to be malleable. It's either because of a dysfunction in, in my brain or, or a temporary heightened experience, peak experiences maybe, mystical experiences where you feel what Freud called the oceanic consciousness, where you see the connections in everything, between everything, and people and plants and, and rocks, and, and that all, all has sentience of some kind of consciousness at some level. Um, You have to go to a deeper level to derail that, you know. Um, if we really are in a computerized simulation, if we really are in the matrix, maybe we are, there would be absolutely no way to prove that we're not in it. That's, that's I don't know, that's the problem, is because you, you can't conclusively answer the question one way or the other. Uh, with With psychedelic drugs, you can experience other realities. So I've read. And for some people, that's enough. I mean, and why not? If everything we know that we really know, we experience. Um, from a sense of discussion, that is still not quite enough on its own. It, it might be enough for the individual psychologically, but as far as trying to determine whether or not we're in a simulation or not, you have to conclusively, once for all and forever, answer the question of what is outside? What is there? What's there? Is there anything there? If, but there's no way we can, we can determine that yet. Maybe with, when they invent AI or quantum computers or something, one would expect that would be part of their question, because phenomenologically, we're at the point now where these machines do, in fact, interpret reality in real time, and that's because of phenomenology, because of Hubert Dreyfus, his work in uh, uh, UC uh, Berkeley, because the original models they were using to build the AI, the things couldn't see, they couldn't walk, they couldn't do any damn thing because they tried to build the, the structure in the AI of the world from the ground up, and the machine couldn't differentiate. It couldn't assign it, something simple, like what's in the foreground of the picture, what's in the background. It, its purpose, it, it, you couldn't, you, it was too complicated to program from the ground up from a, a, a logical neutral point of zero. How do I make this thing see that it needs to walk over 
to the, 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 the vehicle, let's say, and it needs to see where the foreground and the background is, and it has to differentiate between, by order of its task and importance, if you're putting the, play, the part in the assembly line into the, into the vehicle, kachunk, it has to be able to, it has to be able to clearly understand what the difference is. We, we do this, a six-month-old baby can do this, and it couldn't until very recently. Now they can, and they can in large part because of Hubert Dreyfus, a phenomenologist. Not a mathematician, not a logician, although I, I think he was a, a mathematician also, but because of a phenomenologist, understood we're embedded in the world. And the, the qualia are, are determined by the interconnectedness between, between our purpose and um, uh, the, the, the physical skill of seeing. Whereas I, um, the, the, I think the former programmers were, they were trying to construct it from a neutral point of zero. The phenomenologist said, no, build it into the logic tree that that's already there as the foreground. This, is, it, this starts to get into a level of complexity that's more, it's outside the realm of what I'm most um, skilled at and in mastery of. Um, because although, although it was part of my, my work, my dissertation, um, and my continued interest, it's, it's engaging phenomenology on a deeper level. Um, and I'm, I'm coming into that uh, from a different angle, I think, than most phenomenologists. They, they're coming into it with the shared assumption of all philosophers. Well, we, we can see, we, we can take for granted that the, the structure of how we see although it took them a long, long time to begin to figure it out, because you can't see yourself seeing. You just experience that as you do it, but you don't know how you do it. Um, that's one of those things that's so much a, uh, a part of, of your physical skill sets, that you do it unconsciously. And it would be fascinating if, if you have blind people having their vision restored to them who've never had vision, as they're learning how to see, what does that process feel like? And how do they learn to differentiate? And at what point does everything clarify? Um, but I understand for a lot of them, that doesn't really happen. Uh, they never feel at ease with, with seeing a lot of them have tremendous emotional uh, distress. It seems, it seems counterintuitive. I think no matter how bad the problems are, I'd want my vision back instantly. Instantly. Um, but for some, I've even heard anecdotes, I've read about this, there's actually some uh, strong information out there online that's credible. People got their vision, Life was a tremendous disappointment to them in that it didn't work the way they thought it would. 
their physical coordination didn't materialize magically when they could see again. They didn't learn how to see, to differentiate. Most of what they saw were, were remained bright, unintelligible blurs. And when they went blind again, they were actually happy. Uh, I understand that some of them committed suicide. The, the, the suicide rate actually is disturbingly high uh, among those who have had their vision restored who have never had it. To me, that's astounding. That's, that's shocking. Um, but uh, the upshot of all this to bring it back into, into line, which I've, I've allowed myself to go way off topic, and maybe that's for the best. Um, but my wish over these next few episodes is to engage uh, Dr. Peterson's work um, from a place of tremendous uh, respect and gratitude. Because what he told me ultimately was that I was not crazy and that my disapproval of the excesses of uh, postmodern uh, thought and, and the, the phoniness of the, the far left, uh, which I've had to cope with that, that falseness for all my life, that I'm not crazy, that what I'm experiencing is valid and it can't be dismissed by calling me negative or that I'm bitter and angry. No, th this is true, that, that my perceptions of it were not built of an emotionally unstable mind, that, that they were in fact a direct and genuine, legitimate, credible interpretation of the flaws in this methodology of thought. He gave me back my, my peace of mind, my self-confidence in, in my intellectual interpretations of things. You know, because I, I really truly understood after I heard him speak about this that I'm not crazy, that I could see the, the hypocrisy, the contradictions, the internal inconsistencies, and the kind of meanness that uh, this sort of ideology in all of its facets brings out of people the degradation, the moral bankruptcy of this system. This is a parasitic line of thought, actually. It's, it's parasitic because it doesn't, it contributes nothing. It contributes nothing to either benefit people's lives, to give them skills they can use to improve their lives, even philosophically. Philosophy is a skill. It's, it's thinking in a way that most of us, although I said earlier we're all philosophers, that's true on one hand, but in another, it's not. Because philosophy is a means of uh, applying a methodology to address a problem.
to address the validity of a certain line of reasoning. And that postmodern thought ultimately, uh, although it claims to the contrary vociferously, in the end, it does not give one tools by which to achieve any of its goals, its own goals it can't even achieve, all the while it spins itself a, a internal propaganda that it is, uh, nor can it be considered a legitimate form of reason. And I'm saying this with a PhD, and I, I tried to the best I could to evade the worst uh, deficits whereby I studied phenomenology. Uh, some of them are using verbal calculus that, that one can identify as actually, as inductive logic, say. But some of them really aren't. Uh, some of them, it really is just... And that isn't because they don't know how to do it. They do. But it's because their, their thoughts are unscientific. They're, they're guided by confirmation bias. And they're not supplying a goal or a methodology. They can never say, uh, they can never answer the question of well, what, what are you really saying? Can you summarize to me in a nutshell? Can you argue for me with clear speech? Because many of them, and I'm going to uh, close very shortly, many of them write in a way that's very obscure. And they'll try to tell you that the reason why their work is so difficult to read and understand uh, it's because they're thinking thoughts that have never been thought before. And they're trying to use language in a way that language has never been used before. And they're building a whole new paradigm. And the language is, is limited and it's failing to supply the right meanings. And they'll, they'll try to say that uh, the profundity of what they're saying is at such a depth that it can only be understood by a very few. And that only after years and years of, of training. And, and that is actually, <laughs> it is sort of true, that statement that is the last I said. You need years and years of training. But you need that training to memorize all of the words that they're using, that the meaning of those words is, is very protean and, and very subject uh, to the whimsy of the author, uh, that the very underpinning of the structure of the language is being tampered with in such a way that the language is no longer cohesive. And rather than liberating one to think, it does quite the opposite. It makes it uh, impossible uh, to accurately reconstruct or to, to genuinely construct a coherent, tangible argument 
with actual substance. And that's bad enough in and of itself. But these are the interpretive methodologies now that are used in practically every field of study now in the university itself. In English-speaking university, English universities, I, I should say, because in other parts of the world, this isn't allowed. This, this doesn't fly. It's a joke. Well, well uh, let me be a little more accurate and refined. The uh, uh, German or French, for they're the sources of it. Uh, but I think even in their case, they've uh, they've gone past it. Whereas, especially here in America and in England, but in America and Canada, we've become fixated. Um, fixated on some of these thinkers that are, because our, the translations arrived very late. I mean, we're talking about, it's been over 50 years, 55 years. I think Michel Foucault wrote Madness and Civilization in 1961. And Jacques Derrida wrote Writing and Difference uh, of Grammatology and, uh, and Gloss. I think those were all from 1967. And there are some thinkers whose works haven't even been fully translated yet. Um, and, you know, Deleuze, Guy Deleuze, died in 1995. Um, oh, I, I should add, uh, well, I, I, I don't, how do I put this? Um, I think, who should I pick on now? Because Deleuze, I, 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 I don't want to disrespect anybody who faced illness, uh, debilitating, chronic Terminal illness, uh, Deleuze committed suicide. Um, but there was another Alcesser, okay, Louis Alcesser, I think, uh, was not only mentally unstable, uh, but a murderer. And he's one of the leading postmodern thinkers as well. He's a Leninist. And at a certain point, completely lost his sanity and murdered his wife, and, and by way of um, a sadistic, uh, misogynistic self-punishment, he wrote, and I haven't read it yet, but apparently he wrote in, in, at great depth a book describing the strangulation and murder of his wife in a fit of, of psychotic insanity. Um, and there are quite a few books that were on the canon in, my, in any university, the one they refer to most often is Lenin and, Lenin and philosophy. Okay, but there's one of your postmodern thinkers. Alcesser uh, was a murderer. Um, <clears throat> uh, Michel Foucault, I have to say this with the, the greatest of caution. Um, because now, I mean, there are, are people whose lives are devoted to 
trying to discredit people who say one word out of, out of line of political correctness. But it's, it's possible he died of AIDS. It's possible that he knew he was infected for a long time, yet he did not adjust his behaviors accordingly to protect the people that he was, the men he was sleeping with. Uh, that's somebody who's going to try to tell me about the, the moral right uh, to rebel and overthrow the system or what have you, whatever. Well, you can't judge uh, the flaws of the person. And that's back to Heidegger. Uh, maybe us all, but I don't quite think it flies. It's, it's one thing to say we're all flawed human beings. We make mistakes. We hurt people. We don't intend to, or we, or we do intend to, but it can be excused away. It can be a minor... No, I think if you're a thinker at this level of intelligence... You may not live up to it, but at least you should try. You should try not to hurt people deliberately and enjoy doing so. You should attempt to live up to a somewhat higher standard, the same as if you're a theologian. Uh, if you're, uh, although philosophy's importance, perhaps, perhaps it is almost time. For I don't want to. That's part of my life. But perhaps it has sacrificed so much of its credibility that the time has come to flush it down the toilet. I don't, who knows? Who knows? Um, but one expects if if you if you want to take hold of the mechanism for changing the world. And that's what writers do. It's what philosophers do. It's, it's what people who have mastery of the word, whether it's in poetry or uh, uh, music or speeches or, or rhetoric or writing of some kind, I will agree with this aspect of, of deconstruction or of structuralism, as it will be, you know, the words that we use to define ourselves, that, that shape our behavior and determine what we value. If you work with those words and you change them, you're changing the reality of the whole world. And that should afford you a certain sense of duty, of responsibility, that you will not maliciously tamper with, that you won't, um, that you won't use those words to cast black magic spells on people. And that, I think, is what a lot of the postmodernists are doing. In fact, it is what, what can only be described, whether one believes in magic or not. It may as well be black magic, because it's, it's dramatically and profoundly altering the reality of, of people's uh, perceptions.
how they perceive themselves, and how they perceive one another. I'll get to that another day. I, I do want at some point to actually take on, um, at some point, the idea of Aleister Crowley's um, Book of the Law and his influence. Um, I think uh, Georges Bataille, he was one of the, he was the primary influence on Michel Foucault. But I also think Aleister Crowley, and that I've never heard anyone argue this, and I think it can be pretty well proven, that Aleister Crowley had as much to do with postmodernism and with the development of modern thought in the last 70 years, as did Martin Heidegger, maybe more. Because behind all this, maybe it's Crowley. It fits his, his methodology and it, it fits his worldview. So that's for another day in the future. I wanted the occult underground stream and its influence on mainstream philosophy, etc. Uh, but so uh, this is to open my interaction with the work of Jordan Peterson, um, his 12 Rules for Life, his, his defense of traditional values, of trying to restore uh, the worth of the individual and the ascendancy of the individual and valuing the individual as against this sort of uh, misguided and misplaced collectivism. So, my God, I'm shocked that you've still listened to me to the end, uh, if you have. You have my galactic and universal gratitude. And so, as, as always, uh, our sponsors today are the same as always. Um, the, the ghost of yesterday's wine, um, the uh, cake that was left out in the rain, where the water ran down. What a what an a ah oh, what a miserable saccharine song that is. The Tetragrammaton, otherwise known as the number four, and Cogliostro's bones. Until next time. Good luck, good night, be well, happy trails, and God bless. <laughs>